Welcome you legends. Today I have for you a jam-packed three back-to-back -back episode of old-time radio stories slammed together, remastered, and brought to your lovely ears. Your first episode is Benny Townsell, Enter Detective Sergeant Joe Monday's Worst Nightmare, the brave soul assigned to narcotics details. For over two months, it's been open season on doctor's offices, hospitals, and drugstores. These burglars are treating the city like a buffet, swiping narcotics left and right. Will someone stop these crooks in Benny Townsville? And these criminals aren't your average bumbling bandits. They're the real deal. Vicious, cunning, and probably moonlighting as evil geniuses, the detective has got his work cut out for him. Like a last slice of pizza at a Ninja Turtle party. And these criminals are determined to snatch him up. Your next episode is Steel Club Helen. Our dynamic detective duo follow a trail so confusing it can make a GPS question its life choices. False leads pop up like surprise parties and the truth is playing hide and seek like it's on a sugar high. Can Ben and Joe crack the case or end up more lost than a sock in the Bermuda Triangle? Tune in for the suspense and the occasional detective dance-off. These two are on a mission to turn this whodunit into a who's laughing now mystery extravaganza. And your final episode of the night is Red Light Bandit. Our villain, armed with more cunning than a fox at a fox chess tournament, has been giving the city a run for its money, literally. But fear not, because Detective Joe Friday is here to turn the tables and make sure this bad guy's game of hide-and-seek ends with a not-so-friendly handcuff party. Time for the stoplight swindler, rather, to see the red and blue lights for real. Enjoy, you legends. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. NBC brings you Dragnet. <laughs> You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to robbery detail. A ruthless fiend roams the streets of your city, masquerading as a police officer. For months, helpless citizens have been robbed, beaten senseless, and kidnapped. The criminal is a twisted genius, vicious, cunning. Your job is to get him. Dragnet. The documented drama of an actual crime, investigated and solved by the men who unrelentingly stand watch on the security of your home, your family, and your life. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. Wednesday, June 4th. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch on a robbery detail. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Ed Backstrand, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. I was on my way back from communications, and it was 11.13 p.m. when I got to room 27A. Robbery detail. Oh, hi, Joe. Hi, Ben. You got that message to call home? Yeah, bad news. What's the matter? That doggone kid of mine, chicken paw. Oh, again? Last year it was the mumps. Year before that, the measles. 
Every time I get set for a vacation, he decides to catch something. Well, forget it, Ben. Think what a comfort he's going to be in your old age. Go ahead, lad. You'll find out. Yeah. How are you, Friday? Romero? Fine. What can we do for you? You don't look like you remember me. Oh, no, wait a minute. Name's Savage, isn't it? George? Johnny, Sergeant. Johnny Savage, you remember now? Oh, sure. Those liquor store robbers out in the Wilshire district. About six, seven years ago, wasn't it? Ten years, Romero. You ought to remember that. You were the trial. We testify in court every week. Ten years is a long time. It's longer in the state pen. It's a lot longer. Now, you cried a little at that trial, didn't you, Savage? You said we beat that confession out of you. Yeah, that's why I figured I'd drop in for a little visit to kind of apologize to you fellas. You gave me a square deal, I... Yes, I kind of lost my head. I figured I'd apologize. Oh, that's all right, Savage. When'd you get out? A couple of weeks ago. I did it the hard way. Served ten flat. I don't know my day. Find a job yet? Yeah, Friday. I'm working nights. What kind of a job? Laborer in a warehouse, south end of town. Good. You decided to level? Ten years in prison's a long time. You learn a lot of things. Nights are long. You think a lot. You get things straightened out. I hope you mean that. Sure, I mean it, Friday. I've got everything straightened out. I know who my friends are, and I know who to watch out for. You sound like maybe you're on the right track. I got it figured, Romero. Like you two fellas, you caught me red-handed, and you sent me up for ten years. Well, you did all right, Savage. Five armed robberies. You got off pretty easy. You got a break, Savage. Make the best of it. Sure, I'm not kicking. Ten years, a real break. That's right. Well, (laughs) I just dropped in for a little visit. Maybe I'll see you fellas sometime. All right, Savage. Keep your nose clean? Sure. No heart feeling. No? You just took ten years of my life. That's all. There's no such thing as a man going through prison without changing. And Ben and I have seen him switch in both directions. Some men learn their lesson after they land behind bars, and when they're released, they turn into good citizens. Johnny Savage was sour. We made a mental note to check him out later on, and then we went down to the record bureau and pulled his coming out mug. That's about all we had time for, because about an hour later, we started to get busy. Hot shot, Joe. Grab it. On the corner of Selma and Naples, the drugstore, 211 and probable attack. On the corner of Selma and Naples, 211. What you got, Joe? Selma and Naples, 211 and attack. Come on. We got the story from the victim, the store owner, Mr. Thomas. For the most part, it was the usual rundown of an early morning holdup. There was only one exception. Oh, I've had young Boodlins try to hold me up before, but there was nothing like this one. How do you mean, Mr. Thomas? Well, he came in here just before closing, and ordinarily I'd have kept an eye out because that's the time to look for him. But this fellow came to the door and said he was a policeman, so I let him in. He looked like a cop. Boyd's right up to me and the wife behind the counter and pointed a gun. And she screamed and he hit her in the face with the butt of the gun. Sergeant, it was horrible. That's the way it started, and that's the way it kept going. Because most of the victims and most people don't realize that as a citizen, they have the right to check on police officers' identification when in doubt. After we got the story from Mr. Thomas and checked the store in the neighborhood, Ben and I headed back to the office. Attention, all units. At the end of North Baxter Road, near Hillcrest, victim of 211 and slugging. 
That's four blocks away from the last one. Let's roll on it, huh, Ben? Right, I'll hit the siren. You get the light. By the time Ben and I got up to the end of North Baxter, the men from car 71 were already there. The victim was telling his story. His face looked like it had been to a meat grinder. I was just shifting the car into second to make the hill when I hear this siren behind me, and I, I see this red light flashing in the side view mirror. So naturally, I pulled over to the curb, and I was just reaching for my driver's license when the cop runs up, yanks me out of the car, and starts clubbing me in the face with the butt of his gun. Did you get a look at him? Think you can describe him? No, I'm afraid not. He swung me around and kept me staring into that red light on his car all the time he was beating me. After a while, everything just went black. When I woke up, my wallet was gone, all my money. Forty-five minutes later, Ben and I were interviewing the third victim, a young housewife out in the Wilshire district. Same trademark. <laughs> tried to tell him, I tried to tell him I didn't have any money, but he wouldn't listen. He kept holding me by the throat, beating me with his fist like he enjoyed it. Yeah, all right, all right, Mrs. Jameson. Could you tell us how he got in the house? He came in the front door and rang the bell. I opened the door, but I left the burglar chain on. He said he was a policeman. So when he demanded I open the door all the way, I did. And he grabbed me. And you, can't describe the man for it, Mrs. Jameson? He was tall. And he had dark hair and big hands. So it was like a nightmare. Tall, dark hair, big hands. Your guess the same as mine, Joe? Maybe. Let's wait and see. Come on, let's check with the boss. Hi, Mike. Hi. He's waiting for you. In there. Come on, Ben. Leave the detectives office. Hannah. Sit down. Yeah, Skipper. All right, you two. Let's have it. The guy with the red light? Yes, the guy with the red light posing as a policeman. Why hasn't he been picked up? You know as much about it as we do, Ed. We got our first call around midnight. He knocked over a drugstore out on Selma. He hasn't stopped working since. Didn't you get any definite lead on him? No description? No license number? Nothing. He's tall, big hands, dark hair. That's all. Fine. Either of you got any ideas? Could be anybody, Skipper, with that description. You're sure it wasn't anybody on the force? We sent all the victims down to personnel. Lowry showed him the mug book of all police officers. Wasn't one of our men. Works fast. Drugstore, motorist, a pedestrian, a housewife out in the wheelchair district. Went right in the house after her. Four of them, right in a row. Five. Huh? There's a 20-year-old kid in the next room. Came in just before you got here. A couple of hours ago, he was sitting in the car with his girl up in Mulholland Drive. This red light bandit comes along, slugs him, and kidnaps the girl. Kidnapped? She still missed? Not a trace. When did this happen? A couple of hours ago, they brought the kid over from Georgia Street Hospital. We can talk to him now. He's had a bad time. Right in here. Pete, we're going to have to ask you a few more questions. Oh, yeah. Okay. It feels a little better now. This is Sergeant Friday and Sergeant Romero. Hi, Pete. Hi. Can you tell us what time the trouble started? Oh, about 10.15, 10 10.30. Sally and I were sitting in the car talking about where we were going on our honeymoon. We're going to be married next month. And then this car pulls up behind us and starts flashing a red spotlight on us, and a guy runs over and pulls open the door. He said he was a cop. Did you get a good look at his car, Pete? I think it was a black sedan. Did you get a look at the man, Pete? No. No, I didn't. It was pretty dark, and he kept me staring into that red spotlight. 
It all happened so fast. Then he started slugging me, and I went down. What happened then? Well, the next thing I knew, Sally was screaming. He had one hand on her throat, and he had her backed up against the side of the car. He was beating her with the other hand. So some kind of a short billy club. I got up, and I started for him, and he slugged me again. When I came to, Sally was gone. Anybody check the area up there, Ed? Yeah, Davis and Griffin didn't find a thing. Oh, Sergeant, you got to find it. you got to. I wouldn't know what to tell her folks. I wouldn't know what to say. That's all right, Pete. We'll find it. You take it easy. Got a hot shot, Ed, up in Summit Road near Westmore. A woman, unconscious. Ambulance follow-up. Possible dead body. Uh, all right, Hannon. Look after Pete here. Friday, Romero, let's go. Up ahead, Romero, to the right. Okay, Skip. Yeah, there's the ambulance and the cruiser car. You're a lonely looking spot. All right, come on. Hiya, Doc. What'd you find? Hiya, fellas. Right over here. Just gonna take her in. Uh, where'd you find her? Over there, by the side of the road. Somebody driving by us saw her. They called us. Any identification? This bracelet on her wrist. Mm, to my dearest Sally and Pete. December 25th, 1947. That's a girl, all right. What are the chances, Doc? I wouldn't bet on them. Pretty bad shape. Well, have you seen enough? Yeah. Friday, Romero, call the crime lab and check the area for footprints and tire tracks. I'll ride back in the ambulance with the girl. If she regains consciousness, I want to talk to her. All right? Okay, Ed. I'll meet you in the office by 8.30. We're working straight through till we get this guy. See you at the office, Gilbert. What time you got, Ben? Seven minutes to four. Long night. See that car up there ahead. Let's take a look at it, huh? Black sedan. Hey, look, he's flashing a red spot on that convertible. Come on. He sees us, Joe. Pulling away. Get that gas pedal down to the floor. Don't worry, there. He's turning off right. Hit the siren. I'll get the light. We're gaining a little, Ben. Next corner to the left. Joe, where'd he go? The fancy driver. Try the alley up ahead to the left. Must have turned up that cross street. Get through the alley and double back on him. Right. There he is, Ben. Look out. Watch it, Joe. Watch it. He's going to ram us. We got hit just in front of the rear bumper. Our car was forced into the curbing and it turned over. He was real lucky. He kept right on going. But this time, Ben and I were sharing the luck. All we got out of it was a couple of nasty cracks in the head and a few bruises, but it was enough to keep us in a hospital under observation for a day. By this time, Ed Backstrand was fuming. So were the newspapers. During the day we spent in the hospital, the red light bandit went on a real blitz. He pulled six more jobs, one liquor store, two residential holdups, and three car robberies. Five of the six victims were slugged and beaten. Davis and Griffin had taken over for Ben and me, and by the time we got back on the job, they'd built up a lead for us. We've been working with Wilkerson up in auto theft, Joe. He's used four stolen cars already. We got the makes and numbers on each one of them. How about the dark sedan he was driving when he rammed it? The boys picked it up this morning out on Sepulveda. We're checking it for prints now. Oh, that's fine, Dave. You got any description on the guy yet? No luck there, Joe. He works too fast. Nothing at all? The same as you had. Tall, black hair, big hands. Loves to use them. Friday, Romero, got a minute? Okay, Skipper. Check you later, honey. Sure thing, boys. Sit down. How do you feel? Pretty fair, Ed. A little stiff here and there. All right, did Davis fill you in? Up to date. 
Okay, I just called the doctor who was handling Sally Wilder, Pete's girlfriend. Do you remember? Oh, yeah. She's been in pretty bad shape since we found her up there on Summit Road. This morning she took a turn for the better. She's conscious, and her doctor thinks she might be able to talk to us a little bit. Good. When? About an hour. I cleared it with the doctor and with her family. You'll only be able to stay a couple of minutes to make the most of them. That's all. All right, Ed. We'll check with you later. Hey, Joe, Ben, here's some mail came for you fellas while you were gone. Oh, thank you, Mike. We're going over to the county hospital. We ought to be back in a couple hours. Okay. Say, there's been a couple of phone calls, too. Yeah, anything important? I don't think so. The guy just called to say hello. Said his name was Johnny Savage. Just called to say hello. I presume you men are aware of the girl's critical condition. Yeah, that's right, Dr. Froman. We saw her before she was taken here at the hospital. Ah, yes. Uh, You understand, of course, that you'll be able to see her for only a few minutes, and please try your best not to excite her, huh? Right, Doctor. Sally isn't able to talk. Bad mouth and face injuries. So your questions will have to be answered simply yes or no and nod of the head. Okay, we got you. We only have a few questions, and we want to know if she can identify the man who beat her from these pictures we've got here. All right, Sergeant. This way, please. Thank you. Sally, these gentlemen from the police department, they'd like to ask you a few questions. Uh, uh, now, there's no need to be nervous or afraid. Just simply nod your head, yes or no. Now, that's fine. All right, Sally. Uh, Sally, did you see the man who attacked you? Yes. She says yes. Did you get a good look at his face? You did. All right, Sally, now you can answer these three together, just yes or no. Was he tall? Did he have dark hair? Did he have large hands? He did. Ben. Oh, yeah, Jim. Hand me the folder. Here you are. Thanks. Now, there's just one more thing, Sally. I'm going to show you some pictures now. Take all the time you want before you make up your mind about each one. If you recognize any one of these men as the person who attacked you, just nod your head. All right? All right, it's fine. Good. Here's the first one. No? All right. Here's the next one. No. Uh, How about this one? No? All right, here's another. Do you recognize him? This was the man. Are you sure, Sally? Thank you. That's all. Let's go. Did you find what you wanted, Sergeant? Yes, Doctor, we did. Here, this one. Hmm. Nice looking chap. Who is he, Sergeant? His name's Savage, Dr. Froman. Johnny Savage. When we got back to the office, we checked in with Ed Backstrand. In five minutes, an all-points bulletin and a full description of the suspect was broadcast to every radio car, every motorcycle officer, to every sheriff and law enforcement agency in Los Angeles and Southern California. By nightfall, a manhunt was on. More than a dozen extra patrol units were called in for duty that night. When they pulled out of the police garage, the name, the picture, and the full description of Johnny Savage were in the possession of every officer. The same for the patrolmen. Whether they walked the beat downtown or out in the residential areas, the picture of Johnny Savage went with them. Everything was done that could be done. On the second night of the manhunt, far out on the edge of town, Johnny Savage, the red light bandit, got his 12th victim, a 63-year-old storekeeper. Attention, all units. 939 Markham Street, near Clark. 211 and slugging, code 3, ambulance dispatched. All units. Here it is, Skipper. Time. What'd you get? Wilkerson lifted the prints off that black sedan at Ramjo and me. Yeah? They belong to Johnny Savage. Yeah, good. That storekeeper last night is a savage, all right. The victim identified him from his mug. All right. We got enough of this savage guy to put him on ice for life. All we have to do now is to get him. 
Well, look, the way we figure it, Ed, this red light bandit is using stolen cars with coal plates, so there's no way of tracking down the cars at regular commercial garages. He's got to be running private garages someplace around town. All right, let's get the neighborhood patrolman on the job. Advertise it. All over town. The city ordinance, isn't it? People who rent private garages are bound by law to register the car and license number with the police. Start a campaign if you want, but find those cars. Right. And wait a minute. Hello, Backstrand. Yeah? When? I see. Yeah, thanks. What is it, Ed? It was the hospital. About the girl, Sally. Sally Wilder? What about her? She died five minutes ago. That night, everybody went back on the job as usual. The cruiser cars, the patrolmen, the motorcycle officers, and about a dozen decoy cars. Armed policewomen riding alone in cars or parked in lonely spots with a police officer escort. Our car, 80K, was still in the garage for repairs, so they assigned us another one. And we started to make the rounds. Everything was usual. Except one thing. We weren't tracking down just a thief anymore or a sadist who liked to put people's faces in. We were out to get a murderer. It was a perfect night for the suspect. Dark, no moon. I gave Ben two to one odds and I put up five dollars that we'd get Savage that night. I lost the five dollars. We cruised until seven the next morning. But there wasn't even a nibble. We had breakfast at the Federal Cafe, a little restaurant down the street from the city hall, and it was about 8.15 when we got back to the office. We were pretty tired. Robert Detail, Romero. I would like to speak to Sergeant Friday. Just a minute. For you, Joe. Okay, thanks. Friday talking. Sergeant Friday, I want to talk to you. Well, I'm listening. Go ahead. I mean, I want to talk to you in person as soon as possible. Can't you tell me over the phone? What is it? I cannot tell you over the phone. It's very important. Can you come now? Well, now, look, mister, I'm awful sorry, but we're very busy down here. 554 Ramona Avenue. Can you come now? Well, what's this all about? Who is this speaking? My name is Carl Savage. My son's name is John. Here he is, Joe. Neat-looking little place. Yeah. I'm Sergeant Friday. You Mr. Savage? Yeah, come in. Okay. This is my partner, Sergeant Romero. How do you do? I will be brief, gentlemen. I am the father of John Savage. I wish for you to catch him. I, I will help you. I noticed the name on the mailbox outside, Mr. Savage. Change your name lately? I changed my name ten years ago when John first got into trouble. My own name I had to change. The shame. Always from him, my son. Shame. Mr. Savage, has your son been home since he got out of prison? Yeah, many times, to ask for money. I would not give him any, so he struck me. Last night, I read in the newspaper, the little girl he beat up. She is dead. Then I make up my mind. Do you know where your son is now, Mr. Savage? Not now, no. But our garage has a car in there. It is not his, I know. Also in the garage... I find many license plates. I find spotlights with red glass lens. But you don't have any idea where we could find them. No, but he will come back. He always comes back for money. We're going to station an officer here in the house, Mr. Savage. Anything you want, if it will catch him. He's bad, Sergeant. Like something poison or, or true, he's bad. See a sewing basket over him, Mr. Savage? The wife lives here with you? Ten days ago, before this starts, I better get through my wife, his mother. Sergeant, for ten years she's sick, but for ten years she stays alive to see him from prison. Ten days ago, she died. He did not even come to the funeral. 
Did your son have any idea that you might call us? No. No, I don't think so. But when you catch him, give me a gun. With my own two hands, I will kill him. Johnny Savage. Before we left, we called Ed Backstrand and we brought him up to date. He sent three detectives out to relieve us. Davis, Griffin, and Marsh. We told them to keep an eye on the house and the stolen car in the garage. That night after dinner, Ed Backstrand, Ben and I went out and relieved them. We parked the cruiser car in the garage next door, and then we took up our post. Carl Savage had a light supper, and then he went to bed about nine. The three of us sat at the front windows in the darkened house, and we waited. Ben kept his eye on the garage. Outside, across the city, the manhunt continued as usual. Three hours went by. The waiting got monotonous. Brandy, mm-hmm. Romero, look alive, will you? Oh, yes, Skipper. I'm sorry. That clock's enough to put anybody to sleep. Yeah. What time you got? 12.23 a.m. Thanks. The clock kept ticking. We were tired. We took turns keeping each other awake. At ten minutes past two, I looked at my watch, and then I settled back and tried to find some kind of a comfortable position. They started so faintly, it was just like the ticking of the clock. Same rhythm. And then they came closer, and the sounds got out of rhythm. Backstrand's head came up with a snap. Ratty, Romero, you hear that? Yeah, Ed. Get up to the window once the curtains. See anything? Yeah. Yeah, somebody's coming. Savage? Can't tell. Wait a minute, he's slowing down. Going up the driveway to the garage. He's going inside. That's him. Come on. Watch it, he spotted us. Went over that fence into the yard. There he is, Friday. You hit him, Joe. Maybe. He's going for the street. He's headed for that car, Ed. That sedan up on the corner there. Yeah, Romero, go back and get the car. All right, Skipper. Where's Romero? I don't know. Oh, here he comes now. All right, let's go. Get that radio on, Joe. It's already on, Ed. All right, give him a call. Any sign yet? No, nothing so far. Next corner to the right, Ben. Unit 80K to control 4. 80K to control 4. Control 4 to unit 80K. Go ahead. Clear and keep frequency 4 open. This is an emergency. 80K, Roger. Frequency 4, open and clear. Attention, all units. Up ahead, dark blue sedan. Control four. We are in pursuit of a possible red light bandit. Suspect is driving a dark blue 1949 sedan. License number in the seven column. Six one Robert seven eight four. Use caution. Suspect is armed. Code three. Crossing La Brea. Attention, all units. Suspect is heading east on Wilshire Boulevard, crossing La Brea. Watch it, Romero. Don't lose him. I see him, Skipper. Control 4. Still pursuing red light bandit. Headed east on Wilshire, now crossing Rossmore. Attention, all units. Suspect is still headed east on Wilshire, now crossing Rossmore. Suspect is on. Use caution, control 3. That truck pulling out of the head. Hit the siren, will you, Skipper? Yeah. Hold on to that, please. Yeah. Yeah. 
traffic up ahead. He's got to slow down. Control four. Suspect headed east on Wilshire, crossing Western Avenue, closing in. There he goes. He'll go right down Sherman Alley. The dead end. Yeah. Control four. Suspect turns south into Sherman Alley, closing in on suspect. There he is, Skipper. Pulling up ahead. He's jumping out. All right, take the mic, will you? Here. Come on, Ben. I'll direct the other cars in. If you need help, power. All right, Skipper. All right, which way to go, Ben? Down between those buildings. Come on. He's starting up the back fire escape. All right, keep him busy. All right, Savage. Come on down. He wants to go to Ruffwood. One more chance, Savage. Come on down. No use, Joe. He's heading up for the roof. Come on. <laughs> Savage, this guy's father. Mm-hmm. What about him? Nothing. What would you do, Ben, if your son was a murderer? The story you have just heard is true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. John Savage was tried and convicted of murder in the first degree. He was executed in the lethal gas chamber at the state penitentiary. You have just heard the sixth in a new series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet is furnished by the Los Angeles Police Department. Tonight's program is dedicated to Patrol Officer Robert Steele of the Montana State Highway Patrol who on the morning of November 2nd, 1947, gave his life so that yours might be more secure. Dragnet came to you from Los Angeles. Detective Sergeant, you're assigned to narcotics detail. For more than two months, doctors' offices have been burglarized, hospital pharmacies pillaged, drugstores robbed, medical supply firms ransacked, with one purpose in mind the theft of narcotics. The criminals are expert, cunning, vicious. Your job get them. Dragnet. 
the documented drama of an actual crime, investigated and solved by the men who unrelentingly stand watch for the security of your home, your family, and your life. For the next 30 minutes, transcribed in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Thursday, March 23rd. It was windy in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of narcotics. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Ed Backstrand, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. I was on my way back from the record bureau, and it was 10.35 p.m. when I got to room 24. Narcotics detail. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, we'll be right over. Thank you. You get anything, Joe? Nothing we don't know already. How about you? That was the county hospital on the phone. Doc Welch. Pretty fair lead. I told him we'd be right over. What's he got? One of our informants. Benny Trounsel. Ready? Let's go. What's with Benny? Bad shape. Somebody worked him over. They found him in an alley off the of South Main. Yeah? Doc says Trounsel talked before he passed out. Anything good? He claimed he knows who's running the new dope racket in town. Says they got him. Now, let's take the stairs here, huh? Why should they bother with small fry like Benny? That's what I'm wondering. Blackmail, maybe. Benny's still on the needle? Maybe that accounts for his story. Doc says his skull is fractured. Morphine doesn't do that to you. Yeah. Benny mentioned any names? I don't know. Doc didn't say. Here's the garage. Come on. When did they pick up Benny? About an hour ago. You get a pocket full of bindles on him. Heroin. Charles a small fry. He never had that much dope on him in his life. That's what makes it interesting. Let's go. County Hospital? Yes, sir. The line is busy when you wait. Thank you. Can I help you, gentlemen? We'd like to see Dr. Welsh. He's expecting us. Your name, please? This is Sergeant Romero. My name's Friday, police officer. Oh, yes. Around the corner to your left, room 127. The doctor's waiting for you. Thank you. Come on, Ben. I hope Benny's still talking. We could sure use a lead. Yeah. Here it is. 127. Hiya, Ben. Joe? How are you, Doc? Anything new? Just left Trounsel upstairs. You think we can talk to him now? Won't do much good. He died about six minutes ago. For almost two years, Benny Trounsel, an addict himself, had been one of the most valuable informants Ben and I had in the narcotic gangs. More than once, he had helped us solve a case, but this time, if Benny Trounsel had any direct leads to the nerve center of the newest narcotic ring, he took them with him. Besides his dying accusation that the ring had gotten to him, he left behind only two small scraps of information. First... When he arrived at the county hospital, Dr. Welsh reported that Trousel repeatedly muttered the name Patterson. Secondly, among the few personal effects found in his pockets was a good amount of heroin and a small piece of white paper with two words scrawled on it, Tucker Building. Benny Trousel's body was taken to the county morgue, and the next morning it was posted. At the coroner's inquest, the cause of death was listed as a brain hemorrhage induced by severe blows by a blunt instrument on the sides and base of the skull, inflicted by a person or persons unknown. 
Besides Ben and myself, the only identification witness at the inquest was a woman who managed a rooming house in Benedict Alley, where Trounsel used to stay periodically. After the inquest, we questioned her briefly in our office. Miss Strutz, you say you can't remember any friends Trounsel had while he stayed at your rooming house? No, I can't. Besides, if I knew that man used dope, I never would have rented him a room. How long did he rent from you, Miss Strike? About six months. I run a respectable house. I don't mind if my people drink a little now and then, but those dope users, no, sir. Did you know anything about Trounsel, Miss Strike? Where he spent his time, where he had his meals? Well, don't serve at my place. Too much trouble. Most of the people eat at the Ace Lunchroom. Down the corner. Where's that, Miss Strike? Um, Grant and South Main. Right on the corner. You think Trounsel might have spent some time there? He might have, I don't know. Miss Strike, did Trounsel ever mention anyone by the name of Patterson? No. Patterson? No. And you can't recall any friends he might have had? He had any friends and never set foot in my house. That's all I know. All right, Miss Strike. Thank you. Here's a card, ma'am. If you come across any information about Trounsel, we'd appreciate it if you'd call us. All right. Isn't that all? That's all, ma'am. Thank you. Well, bye. Goodbye, ma'am. Big help. Yeah, not even a good identification witness. You got those listings we made on the Tucker building? Yeah. Yeah, let's see. Here it is. Okay, let me have it. Huh? Tucker building, 7310 South Wilshire. I wonder what Benny Trounsel could have been doing out there. Shouldn't be too hard to check. It's a small building. Yeah. Six listings for the whole place. A couple of law offices, real estate guy, dentist, architect, and a doctor. One dentist, one doctor. Couldn't be a lead. Maybe. Pretty thin. Friday, Romero. You got a minute? Yes, Gifford. Come on. Yeah. What do you got, Ed? Letters. Here's a sample. Now listen to this. Chief of Detectives, Ed Backstrand, City Hall, Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. In view of mounting wave of narcotic robberies, strongly recommend that your efforts to curb this lawlessness be redoubled. They all like that? All of them. They're mad. Can you blame them? Not a bit. We haven't got much to go on, Chief. The gang's pretty smart. All right, then let's be smarter. There's no law against it. Doing our best, Giver. Then make it better. I'm sick of that bunch, and I'm tired of these letters. And look at that record. In two months, 15 drugstore robs, eight medical offices, two supply houses, two hospital pharmacies. Narcotics missing every time. Now, who's behind it? None of the old-timers. We've checked them out. Gone over every hyphen mainliner we know of. All right, then get on the transients. New faces. Climb on every one of them that shoots the stuff until you get to that gang and break it. If you need help, holler. But get to that gang and break it. Do you understand? Okay, Skipper, we'll try. You dig up anything on that Trounsel case yet? Still checking out one, Lee. What? Slip of paper we found in Trounsel's pocket, Ed. Said Tucker building on it, that's all. Just going to check it out when you called. All right, hop on it. Fast. We've got a lot of pressure on us. Keep in touch with the office. <laughs> It was almost noon when Ben and I got out to the Tucker building. It was a two-story affair, comparatively small, very modern. We checked with the dentist in the building first, but he'd never heard of anyone by the name of Benny Trousel. His records and appointment books proved it out. Well, that's one down, Jill. Yeah. Let's try that doctor's office now. What's his name? Let me see. Uh, oh, Springer. Dr. Fred Springer. He's on the second floor. Okay. There's a stairway down there. Come on. Pretty close to lunchtime. Might not be in. Maybe. Somebody should be there. We haven't got much time to play with. Yeah. Chief sure was up in there this morning. Here's the office. Fred Springer, M.D. Good morning. 
gentlemen? We'd like to see Dr. Springer, please. Do you have an appointment? No, we don't. Well, the doctor's not in at present. Would you like to make an appointment for later in the day? No, ma'am. We're police officers. This is Sergeant Friday. I'm Sergeant Romero. How do you do? I'm uh, Miss Turner. I'm the doctor's nurse. Then you must take care of the appointment and record books for the doctor. Yes, I do. Well, maybe you can give us the information we're looking for, Miss Turner. Did the doctor ever have a patient by the name of Trounsel? Benny Trounsel? Trounsel? Mm-hmm. No, I, I don't think so. Just a moment. I'll check. Thank you. No. T-R-O-U-N-S-E-L, is that the way you spell it? Yes, ma'am. No. The name's not listed here. Uh, let me check the account book. No. Wait. Funny. What's that, Miss Turner? Here in the back of the book in the doctor's handwriting. Look. Hmm. Tronsel, the black parrot. Certainly funny. I can't remember seeing that notation before. It must be fairly recent. Miss Turner, what kind of a clientele would you say Dr. Springer has? Oh, it's quite exclusive. Beverly Hills, Bel Air. That's where most of the bills are mailed. Can you recall seeing Trounsel in the office here, Miss Turner? Small man, thin, walked with a kind of a limp, not very well dressed? No, I don't think so. Doesn't sound like any of our patients. Would you show us the doctor's prescription list for the last two months? We'd like to check them. Well, I'm afraid I can't. Dr. Springer keeps him in the safe. He's the only one who has the combination. How long have you been with Dr. Springer? About ten months. Ever since he started his practice out here. Where was he before that? Philadelphia. I don't understand all these questions. Is anything the matter? Just a routine check, Miss Turner. When do you expect the doctor back? About four this afternoon. He's out making home calls. All right. Here's our card. Would you ask him to call us as soon as he comes in? I'll do that. Thank you, Miss Turner. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. Oh, say, Miss Turner, one more question. Yes? Does Dr. Springer have a patient by the name of Patterson? Oh, yes. One of the doctor's first patients, John Patterson. He lives out on East Beverly Drive. When we left Dr. Springer's office, we called R&I. There was no make on John Patterson. Ben and I drove over to see him just on a hunch. It didn't pay off right then, but it showed a little promise. When the maid came to the door of the Swank apartment, she told us Patterson was out for the day. We asked her about Patterson's occupation. She didn't know. We asked her about his friends, his business acquaintances. She could remember only two people visiting the apartment. One of them was Dr. Springer, apparently a constant visitor. The other, a tall, dark man who spoke bad English. We asked the maid how long she had worked for Patterson. She said ever since he moved to Los Angeles, about six months before. A few things started to fall into place, but it was strictly a guesswork operation. Ben and I got in the car and headed for the south end of the city to check out some of the places Benny Trounsel was supposed to have frequented. We met a stone wall, from the Ace Lunchroom near Benny's former rooming house to the Black Parrot. No one was willing to talk. Threats didn't work and neither did promises. Ben and I gave up for the moment and headed back to the office. Pacific Ambulance 1, call to Alhambra, is now code 3. Seems like Skid Row doesn't want any part of this one. Yeah, there's a bad feeling. Something's got him scared. Sure would like to know what it is, or who it is. Yeah, I'd like Control to know the answer to Control 1, unit 82. Control 1, unit 82. Bust, Joe, get it, will you? I got it. 80K to Control 1. 80K to Control 1. Go ahead. 80K. Call station 2511, code 3. 80K to Control 1, Roger, KMA 367. Wonder what that's all about. Well, let's find out. There's a drugstore. They ought to have a phone. Pull over, huh? You got a nickel? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Thanks. I'll be back in a minute. 
2511. Thank you. Chief of Detectives Office, Hannon. This is Friday, Mike. The chief there? Oh, yeah. Just a minute. Thanks, man, talking. This is Friday, Ed. What do you got? You tied up? Nothing big. Then check in as soon as you can. Got something good. What? You remember the stick-up at St. Agnes Hospital about a month ago? Pharmacy there? What about it? Two patrolmen picked up a user down near Union Station about an hour and a half ago. Yeah? Guy was way back on his heels. He had two vials of morphine on him. Vials had serial numbers. Good. Did they match out? Perfectly. Thanks, Ed. We'll be right in. When Ben and I got back to the office at 3.52 p.m., we picked up Chief Ed Backstrand and went directly to the crime lab where Lieutenant Lee Jones analyzed the contents of the two vials taken from the suspect. Jones told us it was high-grade morphine. We went back to the office and double-checked the serial numbers on the vials with the crime report on the St. Agnes Hospital robbery. They matched. And there's a good break. These vials were in the loot when the gang knocked over the hospital 28 days ago. Now stay on the trail and we'll crack that gang wide open. This the arrest report on the guy, Ed? Yeah. Picked him up in a bar off South Main. Who is the guy? Trying you? Yeah, here it is, man. James Steiner, Phoenix, Arizona, age 37, transient laborer. Anybody talk to this guy yet, Ed? Not yet. He shouldn't be too hard. You better get on it. Right, Skipper. Come on, Joe. Check you later, Ed. What time you got, Ben? Let me see. Uh, 25 past four. Phone call for you, Ben. Yeah, who was it? Your wife. Wants you to pick up some aspirin and a bottle of nose drops for your kid on your way home. Oh, yeah. Almost forgot. That's the only call we had, Mike? That's right. Thanks. Well, you got that Dr. Springer's number, Ben? Yeah. Um, here it is. Request you 55284. Five, Thanks. Nurse said he'd call us around four, didn't he? Yeah. Dr. Springer's office. This is Sergeant Friday down at the police department. Dr. Springer there? Well, no, he isn't, Sergeant. He called in about 20 minutes ago when I gave him your message. He said he'd call you. All right, Miss Turner. When he comes in, tell him to call us. Impress on him it's urgent. All right, Sergeant. I'll do that. Goodbye. Goodbye. No luck? I don't know. Just a hunch. He may be ducking us. Who are you calling now? State Medical Board. Maybe they can check us out on Dr. Springer. I put the call through to the State Medical Board and asked for a check on Dr. Fred Springer. They said they'd call back within the hour. In the meantime, we had James Steiner brought to one of the interrogation rooms for questioning. It was all talk. Like I told the sergeant when they booked me, I, I don't know anything about this hospital job. Sit down, Steiner. Oh, all right, thanks. How long you been in the city, Steiner? L.A.? Oh, about a month. I came from Phoenix looking for work. Things are pretty slow in Phoenix. Where'd you get the morphine? Huh? I said, where'd you get the morphine? The stuff? Oh, I bought it. Just for a pop now and then, I just play around with it. Just for kicks. Who'd you buy the vials from? Who? I don't know. In a bar, gave me a price. Which bar was that? Which bar? Uh, Black Paris. I, I'm not hooked. I, I just play around with it, just for kicks. What'd the guy look like, Stoner? What did he look like? I don't know. Tall, I guess. Would you remember him if you saw him again? Remember him? Sure. I talked to him a couple of nights at the bar. Was he on the stuff? Was he a hype? Hype? Yeah. Maybe. Tall fella, Doc. You shooting the stuff? Shooting the stuff? No. No, I, I'm no mainliner. I never took in the veins of my life. I, I told you. Do it just for kicks. Just a pop now and then. 
Take off your shirt. Let's see your arms. Huh? My arms? Come on, take it off. Where? Who are you kidding, Stanley? Your arm looks like a pincushion. I, I, I told you just once in a while, just for the kicks, I'm hooked on it. They found two vials of stolen morphine on you, Steiner. You can go two ways, hard or easy. Hard or easy? I, I told you I ain't done nothing. I, I bought the stuff. I, I use a cap or a bingo once in a while for kicks, but I'm not hooked. I bought the stuff, I tell you. Who was he, Steiner? Who sold it to you? Who? I told you I met him in a bar, the Black Parrot. Who was he? He was tall. Dark, he gave me good price. Come on, let's have it, Steiner. His name. I'm feeling sick. You got something for me, I'm sick. All right. Mike! Yeah, Joe? Get some milk. A couple of quarts right away. Okay. You ready to tell us, Steiner? Who was he? We're getting some milk for you now. Come on, you better talk. Max. That, that, that's all he said. Name was Max. He gave me a good price. I only take a pop now and then just for kicks. You think you could point him out for us? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. I'm sick. I'm sick. Okay, Alex Romero. Hello. This is Dr. Springer calling. You wanted to talk to me. Yes, we did, Doctor, and we've got a few questions we'd like to ask you. Oh, hold on just a minute, will you? Dr. Springer, Joe. All right, tell him we got to see him tonight. We'll call him back later. Dr. Springer? Yes? Sorry, Doctor, we'll have to see you later on tonight. You be at home? Well, I have an appointment this evening. Uh, would you mind telling me what this is all about? Sure, Doctor. It's about a man named Benny Trounsel. Oh, I see. And if you don't mind, we'd like to check over your prescription list with you. Cancel my appointment. You can contact me here at home. 1538 South Road. I'll be here all night. All right, Doctor. Thank you. We'll see you later then. Uh, yes. Goodbye. Goodbye. What do you say? All right? Yeah, it's all right. I'll buy that hunch of yours now, Joe. Hmm? Dr. Springer, he knows who killed Benny Tronzel. I bet he knows why. When Mike Hannum came back with the milk, we fed it to Steiner, and then we put him back in his cell. We put in another call to John Patterson out on East Beverly Drive, but there was no answer. We left word with Hannon where we were going, and then Ben and I headed out for Dr. Springer's home. It was 7.35 when we pulled up into the driveway at 1538 South Road, a low, rambling, ranch-type home. We got out of the car and made our way down the path to the front door. A gray Persian cat followed us. The door was half open. We knocked, but there was no answer. Through the window, we could see the living room was dimly lighted. We went in. We found Dr. Springer sitting in a large carved mahogany chair in the dining room. The room was hung with draperies. He was slumped forward, face down on the dining table. There was a bullet hole in his right temple. On the floor near his right hand was a 32 automatic pistol. In the center of the dining table was a piece of white paper. Looks like he beat us. Yeah. Any names on that confession? One. Says he killed Trump. No, wait a minute. It says, uh, John Patterson. He forced me to this. What? I don't know. What's it look like to you? Here's another one. Norberg. That's all it says. Then he signed his name, Dr. Fred Springer. Ben, come over here. Look at these. Hmm. Hypodermic needle. The 
works. Is this morphine? White powder. Could be. Then he was on it himself. Looks like it. We'll find out when they post him. I'll get it. Yeah. Sergeant Friday there, please. This is Joe, Mike. What do you got? Can you talk all right there? Yeah, go ahead. Just got a kickback on your call to the state medical board on this Dr. Fred Springer. Mm-hmm. He's not a registered physician in the state of California. Besides that, his license was revoked in Pennsylvania two years ago. Illegal operations. That explains it. Notify homicide. Get the crime lab in the corner out here, will you? Looks like Springer shot himself. Okay, Joe, right away. We'll wait for him, but hurry him up, Mike. We got a couple more places to check out tonight. Okay, Joe, see you later. Right. What's next? Patterson place? I don't know. Maybe we ought to try Steiner first. Sounds good to me. Feels like we're getting close. Yeah, Ben. Real close. 12 minutes later, Homicide and the crime lab men checked in at the Springer house and Ben and I checked out. We went back to the office and found Ed Backstrand waiting for us. We told him our story and he sent two men out to keep an eye on the Patterson place. Two other men went to work to try and track down the other name in Springer's confession note. Norberg. Ben and I went up to the county jail and picked up Steiner. The three of us started out to look for the man who sold Steiner the two vials of morphine stolen from the hospital pharmacy a month before. The man's name was Max. He was tall and dark. That was all we knew. The rest of it was up to Steiner. Two other men from the detail, Davis and Emerson, came along with us to take care of Steiner if anything went wrong. Our first stop was the Black Parrot Tavern. Davis parked the car in an alley down the street. Steiner, Ben, and I got out and walked the rest of the way. You understand what you're supposed to do, Steiner? Me? Yeah. I go in first and sit at the bar. You two will follow me. I sit at the bar, and if I see Max, I give you the sign. That's, that's okay, huh? That's right. Then you don't try to break for it. Break for it? Me? I, I told you, I'm squaring with you guys. All right, Steiner. Go ahead. Let's hope it works, Joe. Yeah. There he goes inside. Come on. Now, look, try to grab one of the booths along the wall if you can, huh? Right. Here we are. First booth, Ben. It's empty. Yeah. Oh, it's left to order at the bar. Waitress got a night off. Make it a couple of beers, will you? A couple of beers? Okay. Joe, go look at Steiner. Yeah, he's signaling. Must mean the guy putting on his coat over there. No, hold it, Ben. Wait till he gets past us. All right, get Steiner back to the car. I'll tell the guy. You come after me. I didn't know how right Steiner was or how much we could trust him. All I knew was that the man I was following was tall and he was in a hurry. I followed him three quarters of a block before he turned in at a motel. He went to a cottage at the rear of the lot, let himself in, and closed the door quickly behind him. A minute later, Ben and the others pulled up in the car. Got him staked first, Joe. Steiner says that was Max. Let's make sure. Come on. Which one's the in? The one down at the end here. Now be careful. You too. All right, here we are. Wait a minute right there. No rear door. He's got to come out the front. Keep the door clear. You ready? All set. Cover me. Open up in there. Who is it? Police officers. Open up. Just a minute. All right, Ben. Give it back to him. All right. Throw your guns out first and come out with your hands behind your head and make it fast. Watch it, Ben. He's making a break. All right, mister. That's far enough. Get out of my way. Get out of Get my way. Get him, Ben. 
good, Ben. You all right? Yeah. He didn't mean it, Copper. He didn't mean it. He didn't know what he was doing. Well, that must be a good excuse, lady. A lot of people use it. Come on, Ben. Let's take him in. It was ten minutes past midnight when we got back to headquarters. Both the man and the woman were booked for violation of the State Narcotics Act, a felony. He gave his name as Max Jansen. In his luggage, we found 13 vials of morphine, large quantities of heroin, and a small amount of panopin. He gave us the names and addresses of six active members of the narcotics gang. He identified Dr. Springer as second in command. Just a few more questions, Jansen. Yeah, all right. Why did Springer kill Trounsel? He had it coming. Trounsel knew the score and he was blackmailing them, bleeding them white. Why didn't the gang take care of him? Boss said no rough stuff. Things were going too good. He warned Springer, but he wouldn't listen. All right, Jansen, just one more question. Who's the boss? Can I get off flight? State's witness? It might help. We can't promise you anything. Who's the boss, Patterson? Yeah. 138 East Beverly Drive? That's right. What about Norberg? How does he figure? The same guy. Patterson and Norberg, both the same. And what's his real name? Norberg. Tony Norberg. What's his front? He's legit or used to be importing business. Where? Here. Got an office downtown. Do I get protection? Where's Norberg now? Home out in Laurel Canyon. I get protection? I thought you said he lived out on East Beverly. His apartment, his home's out in the canyon. Where? What's the address? Can I get protection? You'll get protection. Wind and Way. 860 Wind and Way. All right, Friday. Romero, take some men with you. All right, Davis, cover the back of the house. Levine, you cover the front. Come on, Ben. Mr. Norberg in. Who's calling? Police officer. Oh, come in, won't you? Thank you. Now get your hands up. Face the wall. You'll never make it, lady. The house is surrounded. Tony, get the stuff. It's our only chance. They'll cut you down, Norberg. All right, Jeannie, give him the gun. Don't be a fool. They're going to march out the door in front of us, right to the car. I'm not going, Jeannie. Try it if you want. I'm not going. All right, Tony, stay. Come on, coppers. You'll never make it, lady. I said move. Fast. All right, Ben, hit the dirt. She's going for the car. See if you can get those tires. Come on. Dan? Yeah. Norberg was smart. Must be the girlfriend. Yes, so. Wonder why they start. Hmm? Why do they get on the stuff, Joe? For kicks, Ben. None of them ever get hooked. Just for kicks. The story you have just heard is true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. Tony Norberg, alias John Patterson, was tried and convicted for possession of narcotics, robbery, and conspiracy, and was sentenced to the maximum term prescribed by law, each count to run consecutively. He died three years and 11 days after his arrival at the state penitentiary. You have just heard the ninth in a new series of authentic cases transcribed from official files. 
technical advice for Dragnet is furnished by the Los Angeles Police Department. Tonight's program is dedicated to Chief Erskine Ert Fish of the North Sacramento Police Department, who on the night of August 11th, 1935, gave his life so that yours might be more secure. Dragnet came to you from Los Angeles. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to homicide. Somewhere in the tangled web of your city, there's a killer on the loose. A young woman has been brutally murdered. The weapon, a steel bludgeon. Your job is to get him. Dragnets, the documented drama of an actual crime, investigated and solved by the men who unrelentingly stand watch on the security of your home, your family, and your life. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step-by-step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Thursday, March 19th. It was foggy in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of homicide detail. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Ed Backstrand, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. It was 9.14 p.m. when I got to the old central jail building, third floor. The crime lab. Hi, Joe. Hi, coming, Lee. Just ran a spectrograph. What'd you find? The paint flake from the victim's head matches that paint on the hunk of pipe. Any prints? No, the pipe was clean, no latent prints. Well, that figured. Anything else? Got those blood test reports. A couple of slides for you to look at under the comparison mic. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Lee. Oh, hi, Joe. Didn't hear you come in. What's it look like, Ben? Well, here's the blood test reports. This one is blood found on the piece of pipe. Mm, type A. This one's blood from the victim. Type A. They match. That's right, boys. Doesn't mean too much, though. Did you look at these slides under the microscope? No, not yet. Well, this is your clincher. Wait till I get the light. Okay, take a look. Mm-hmm. Got a make? Yeah, go ahead. Well, this slide here on the right... Mm-hmm. That's a slice of hair from the victim's head. On the other slide is hair found on the steel pipe. Yeah. She had wavy hair. Both specimens are flat. Same hair, Joe. You got anything on that piece of pipe, Lee? Mm, nothing. Just ordinary steel pipe. Fourteen inches long. What else you got? The plaster impressions of those footprints we found by the body. Here they are. Hmm. Crepe sole? Tennis shoes. New one. Size nine. Good impression. Ground was soft. Man about 150 pounds, according to the length of stride, roughly about 5 feet 10 inches tall. Yeah, new shoes, all right. You can still read the manufacturer's label. That's right. Made by the Sport King Company. Well, that's something to follow up. Yeah, sure. You could start with the tennis courts. Only about a 1,000 or so in L.A. Maybe you'd rather track down the brand. These particular tennis shoes are the biggest sellers in the country. Yeah. Where'd you like to start, Minneapolis or Pullman, Washington? What about that glove? Yeah, you might look for a missing glove. Yeah. They go well with the shoes, just about as common. White cotton work gloves with a blue top. Here's the right glove. You find the left one. Blood on a glove? Type A. Well, that's good evidence, Jones, but where's the lead? Now, look, I don't ask you to pay my parking tickets. You want to see blow-ups? Okay. Right over here. Oh, yeah. 
This is the vacant lot where they found the body. And that's right. Here's a close-up of her showing the location of the murder weapon, the glove, and the footprints relative to the position of the body. Looks as bad as yesterday. Sure did work her over, didn't it? The rest of these are morgue shots. Interested? No, I checked them this morning. Once is enough, Lee. Yeah, that winds it, boy. You want to go over the stuff in her purse again? You find anything more? No, nothing you haven't seen already. The usual. Makeup, comb, barrette. That's a hair clip. Mm -hmm. A few cheap stones in it. Loose change, a quarter, nickel, a few pennies. Her ID card. Yeah. Helen Corday. 33 Naomi Place. Age 21. 21. It's not very old, is it, Lee? Not to die. No. Helen Corday. Who could kill Helen Corday? Why? Why do you say that, Mr. Meyer? People kill for money. They, they kill for love. Helen Corday had none of these. No boyfriend? Not in here. No, she was a good worker. Five different waiters as the union sends me one month. Five! Did the union send Helen to you? Oh, sure, sure. All the girls come from the union, but none like Helen. Oh, she was sweet, honest, and courteous. Mr. Meyer, did you know anything about her personal life? Only that she was a good worker. Everything else she took home with her from this place. Did she ever mention any men to you? Anyone at all? No gentleman, not one. No. How much money did she make here? I paid her $26.50 a week every Tuesday. Not much salary for so much work, but the tips are very good here. Nice customer. Mm -hmm. nice this is her home address, 33 Naomi Place? 33 Naomi, that's right, yeah. Thank you very much, Mr. Meyer, for your time. I wonder what kind of a person does things like that. Who could kill Helen Cordy? Everybody liked Helen. Helen Cordy? I never liked her. Come on in the office, boys, where we can talk. Never liked her because I never knew her. You the head of the union? I just a steward. I know most of the girls. This Corday girl, what was she what she look like? Small brunette, about five three. Oh, here's a picture. Yeah. Pretty girl, wasn't she? Oh, sure, sure. Mr. Avisato's place. Nice little Dutch fella. Adamaya. That's right. He seemed to think quite a lot of her. Yeah, she was a fine worker. Oh, sure. Always right up on her dues. Paid all the assessments right on time. Thought you said you didn't know her. Well, not right off, I didn't. But when you showed me that picture there, placed her right away. You know anything about her personal life? Well, wait a minute. Why all these questions? Helen Corday was murdered last night. Oh. Who did it? You know anything about her personal life? Well, you can see my position, Sergeant. Twelve hundred girls. Check them in, check them out. Huh, just names to me till I see a picture of them. You wouldn't know if she had any boyfriends here in the Union, waiters, busboys? That I wouldn't know. Like I tell you, Sergeant, I never knew Helen Corday. Sure, I knew Helen Corday. Gus plays a nice piano, huh, Sergeant? Yeah. I read about it in the paper this morning. How long have you been selling pianos here at this place? About as long as I knew Helen. Three years. How'd you find me? Helen's landlady, we talked to her yesterday. She told us she worked here at this piano store. Oh. Funny, isn't it? What's funny? See Gus over there? That fellow demonstrating the piano? A few weeks ago, I made a deal with him to give Helen piano lessons. I figured it would help her with her singing lessons. Wanted to be a singer, you know. Did Helen know that fellow, Gus? No, she never met him. Who gave her the singing lessons, Miss Olsen? She took from Ostrander, 
Paul Ostrander out on Melrose. A lot of movie people used to take from him. What do you know about her personal life? How do you mean? Does she have any boyfriends? Well, yes. You don't seem sure, Miss Olsen. Well, it's just that I don't know. I never asked Helen. But she did have a few dates with Paul Ostrander. I don't think she was serious. How about Ostrander? Well, gee, I, I don't know, Sergeant. I don't want to involve anybody. You want to help us find the killer, don't you? Well, yes, but if you're thinking Paul Ostrander did it, no, I'm sure he didn't kill her. That's all for today, Victoria. No, gentlemen. I did not kill Helen Corday. You gave her singing lessons, Mr. Ostrander. You knew her pretty well? Yes, I gave her voice coaching for about a year and a half. Helen showed a little promise. Not a great voice, a bad vibrato. You knew her pretty well. Why do you say that? Mr. Ostrander, didn't you used to take her out once in a while? No. No, I didn't know Helen socially at all. We know you had dates with her. That's not true. Only time I saw her was when she came here to the studio for lessons. You better tell the truth, Mr. Ostrander. We can prove that you've been out with her. Afraid of the publicity, is that it? Certainly, that's it. I have a successful business here. I've spent years building it. Anything like this would ruin me. Then you have been out with her. Only a few times. Nothing serious. I had nothing to do with her murder. Now, that's the truth. Don't you know that withholding information about a thing like this can go kind of hard for you? Yes, I know that. What else could I do? Mr. Ostrander, somewhere in this city right now, there's a guy who beat a young girl to death. He crushed her skull with a piece of steel pipe. We need every bit of information we can get to track him down. I know that, sir. You could have come to us. We wouldn't run to the newspapers with it. If the information's confidential, that's the way we treat it. Most of the time, it's the people who run to the newspapers first. Then they come to us. That's right, Mr. Ostrander. People are their own press agents. Sergeant, I'd like to know what right you have to invade my privacy and lecture me on my civic duty. All right, I'll tell you what right, Ostrander. We want the man who murdered Helen Corday. I got as much right as he had at 12.14 this morning. Come on, Joe. Yeah. Thanks, Mr. Ostrander. Sorry if I invaded your privacy. Chief of Detectives, orders. Hannum. No, I'm sorry, ma'am. You got the wrong extension. Try 2511. You're welcome. That's right here, Romero. Chief's been looking for you. Thank you, Mike. Come on, Joe. Yeah. Hello, Joe. Ben. Sit down. What'd you get? A notebook full of notes, a crime lab full of evidence, nothing to tie them together. Uh, these some of the people you interviewed? Yeah, those and about a dozen more we didn't even take notes on. It's hard to figure, Skipper. Everybody seemed to like this girl. Helen Corday, no known relative. Single, unattached girl, living all alone in the city. Few friends and no enemies, none we can find anyway. Are you uh, satisfied that all the people you interviewed are in the clear? Well, if we're going to stick to the simple robbery motive, we are kind of money Helen Corday made wouldn't interest those people. How are you doing on the outside leads? Nothing. If we could just find one hole someplace, anything. All right, now look. You've got a lab full of evidence across the street. You've got a book full of names here. You've got the pieces. Now fit them together. They just don't add. Well, go over them and keep going over them until they do add. Anything from the informants? No, nothing so far. No tips on anybody that's been dough lately. Nobody's shooting off their mouth. Uh, the guy we want won't advertise. Figures himself a pretty smooth operator. But he probably made a mistake somewhere along the line. We'll find it. Got a hot shot, Ed. Yeah? 3220 Casino. Woman. Probable attack. All right, Friday. 
You and Ben run it down. We ran down the hotshot call for 3220 Casino. Turned out to be a typical dead-end lead. Her name was Mrs. Lillian Horn. For the past five years, Mr. Horn had been paid regularly on Wednesdays. He spent all day Thursday drinking up his paycheck and beating his wife. The call had no connection with the Corday murder. We made the usual call into communications. Unit 80K to Control 1, 80K to Control 1. Control 1 to 80K, go ahead. On that probable attack, 3220 Casino, code 4. 80K, roger. 80K to Control 1, KMA 367. That was the beginning. For the next three days, we followed up every lead and every call, but they were all blind. All units were alerted, and they had as much information on the killer of Helen Corday as we did. Ben and I cruised throughout the entire Central Division. We covered every probable call that might have some connection with the murder. Attention, Unit 41R, 1654 Swanson Terrace, a woman, victim of probable attack, code 3, Unit 41 it didn't make any difference what the call was. If there was a possibility it might tie in with the Corday murder, we ran it down. We made it a 24-hour job. So far, if the killer made a mistake, we hadn't been able to find it. The Corday funeral was on Monday. They were all there. The girl's landlady, the voice teacher, Ostrander, the girlfriend, Marie Olson, the man from the union, and her boss, Otto Meyer. But nobody else we hadn't checked. That was Monday afternoon. Monday night, we went back to the old routine, tracking calls during the night in the squad car, picking up small threads that led nowhere. Three more days of the same thing. Thursday morning, one week after we found Helen Corday's body, we got an anonymous phone tip. I know who killed Helen Corday. His name's George Barlow. He lives at 418 White Oak Avenue. He used to date her up all the time. Get him and you've got the murderer. We checked George Barlow and about ten others just like him. None of them knew Helen Corday. Saturday night, Ben and I were back in the squad car cruising the Central Division. Saturday night's a good night for robbery. By 10 p.m., we'd run down four various calls. 123, code 1. 123, Roger. 12G, call your station. Unit 13R, 1254 Tower Road. A woman screaming. That's the in trouble. Code 2. Let's handle that one, Ben. Yeah, okay. I'll notify communications. Unit 80K to Control 1. 80K to Control 1. Control 1 to Unit 80K. Go ahead. On your 1254 Tower Road call, we're in the vicinity. We will handle. 80K, Roger. 80K to Control 1, KMA 367. Let's go, Ben. Control 1 to 13R. Disregard your last call. Handled by 80K. Yeah, should be right about here. Oh, here it is. 1254. <laughs> the man he tried to kill me is running out of feet. Where? He's getting to that gun at me. <laughs> he tried to kill me. Come on. Where'd he go, Joe? Turn right at the next corner. That's him up ahead. Got a good lead on us. Hit the siren. He's gaining, Joe. Took a left at the next corner. Oh, he isn't going to stop. Close in as tight as you can, Ben. Down to the floor now. Swing out to the left a little. I'm going for his tires. Right. All right, that'll slow him down. Pull up on him. Yeah. All right, you. Keep both hands on that wheel and get over to the curb. 
Cover me, Joe. Right. Out of that corner, mister. Shake him down. Hey, take it easy, will you? I haven't got a gun. Put the cuffs on him. Hey. You boys work fast. What am I doing with the gas chamber? Just save that, mister. It's pretty rough treatment for speeding. All right, right. come on, you. Look, I, I got a right to know where you're taking me. What's the charge? We'll let the girl tell you. What girl? You can sit there and be quiet, huh? Oh, I know where you're going. The place back on Tara Road. Well, I asked to use the phone. The girl slammed the door in my face. I don't know what you cops are trying to prove. I just wanted to use the phone, that's all. I even tried to scare her a little. I, I told her I'd hit her over the head if she didn't let me use the phone. It's a laugh, huh? All right, you get out. Yeah, I suppose so. Get out. Hey. I got nothing to hide. That little girl's gonna lie, you know that, don't you? Who's there? Police officer. It's the man. That's him. He's trying to kill me. His full name's Frank Philip Larson. They had no previous record. This the girl's report? Yeah, that's it, Skipper. Uh, Judy Scott. How old is she? He's 19. He's a babysitter. Real tough boy, isn't he? Forced his way into the house. Beat her about the neck and arms. A tire iron. He fought it in his car. Jones is running it through the crime lab. Asked her if she had any money. She told him no. Struck her again. Where's this Larson live? Hotel out near Santa Monica. The clothing salesman. Ed works for a big men's store, Burns and Company. According to the house book sales record, he bought a pair of tennis shoes two weeks ago. Weighs 158 pounds, 5 foot 11 inches. Tennis shoes are missing. They're not in his hotel room. He's not wearing them. What else did you find? A rhinestone. You mean a pin? No, just a small loose stone recovered from the rug in Larson's room. Crime lab got it? Working on it now. Ed, I think we got the man who killed Helen Corday. A few scraps of circumstantial evidence and a hunch. That's not much to go on. Larson had gone after the little Scott girl with a tire iron. Wasn't much of a tie-in, but we had to be sure. All that day, we checked Frank Larson's alibi for the night of Helen Corday's murder. We interviewed the personnel manager at Burns and Company where he worked. We talked to all the clerks who knew him. The manager of the hotel where he lived. We found out everything we could about Frank Larson. And that night at 10 o'clock, we had the prisoner brought to the interrogation room. How are you, Larson? Fine. Just fine. I like jail. Sit down. Lousy weather, been foggy all over town. I wouldn't know. I've been inside all day. How old are you, Larson? Thirty-one, same as the last time you asked me. Where'd you go to school? I didn't. I was born smart. You sell clothes, don't you, Larson? We know you work for Burns and Company. Remember, you told us. What is all this? What are you guys trying to build? Just want to know if you like selling clothes. That's all. Well, you coppers know about clothes. One blue surge a year is your speed. You know quite a bit about clothes, don't you? I've been selling them for five years. Can you tell me something I've been wondering about? What's that? Are your socks and tie always supposed to match? That's what the style books say. Bet you always know the right things to wear, don't you? You wouldn't wear black shoes with a brown suit, would you? Is that what you're keeping me here for? Stylism? Oh, would you? Would you wear black shoes with a brown suit? Most people wouldn't. Bet you wouldn't wear brown shoes with a tuxedo, either. I ain't smoking too much. You got a glass of water? Oh, yeah, sure. There you are, Lord. Thanks. That's a 
didn't call. How about it? Would you ever wear brown shoes with a tux? Nobody would. That's a navy blue flannel you got on there, isn't it? Yeah. It's a good-looking suit. Stop around sometime. Get you a good deal. Suit like that flannel there you're wearing. You'd never wear tennis shoes with an outfit like that, would you? What do you think? I think you did. I think you wore them the night you killed Helen Corday. Who? Maybe you didn't have the blue suit on, but you were wearing tennis shoes. Sport King, size 9. Sell for five ninety five. You picked them up at a discount. Cost you three and a quarter. Where'd you get that? Out of the house book, Burns and Company. You wouldn't have those shoes around now, would you? We couldn't find them in your hotel room. Your boss, Mr. Craig, used to think a lot of you, Larson. Before you started drinking on the job, your commissions used to run pretty high up the last couple of months. What happened? That cheap ride get to you? Well, you two really nosed around, didn't you? When are you going to tell me what I eat for breakfast? Cornflakes, cup of coffee, donut, sometimes two donuts when you're hungry. Elsie waits on you at the Royal Cafe. She gets a dime tip. Can I have some more of that water? Help yourself, there's a cooler. Very good and cold. How about it, Larson? Where are the tennis shoes? They wore out. In three weeks? Can't be very good tennis shoes. No, they didn't wear out. What'd you do with them? You know all the answers. You figure it out. We know you bought the tennis shoes. We don't know where they are now. We know you had them. Size nine. Three feet from the body of Helen Corday, we found two size nine footprints made by a pair of Sport King tennis shoes. We figured the man weighed about 150 pounds. You weigh 158. Figured he's about five foot ten. You're five eleven. You come awful close to being the same build as the man who killed Helen Corday, don't you, Larson? And you wear the same size tennis shoes, same brand name. A lot of people wear nines. It's the average size. They sell a lot of Sport Kings, too. Everybody wears them. If we could find your pair, might make a difference. Doesn't mean your tennis shoes made the prints with the body. Doesn't prove it. It didn't, neither. What'd you do with them, Larson? I throw them away. That's too bad. Might make a difference. Oh, what difference could it make? I throw them away, that's all. Well, how about the mate to this glove? I never saw it before. Found this right-hand glove by the body of Helen Corday. Just an ordinary cotton work glove. Everybody wears them. If we could find the missing left glove, why, well, might make a difference. Size medium. It's average, too, isn't it, Larson? I never saw work gloves. I wouldn't know. No, but you bought work gloves, haven't you? Not a pair of those. I mean like this, don't you? We only got one. What kind of work gloves did you buy? I didn't buy any. You just said you did. I never said I bought any work clothes. You bought tennis shoes, though, didn't you? I Sport. told you I bought the tennis shoes. Didn't I tell you I bought them? No, you didn't tell us. We told you. Found out from Burns and Company where you were. All right, you told me. I bought them. You know that. Same kind of tennis shoes that made footprints by Helen Corday's body. It wasn't me. Then why won't you tell us what you did with them? I've shoes? already told you. I threw them away. They were only three weeks old. They must have worn out awful fast. I didn't say they wore out. They got too dirty. No, you told us they wore out. Remember, Larson? I don't remember what I told you, but I don't have them now. We know you don't have them now. Where are they? He told us they got too dirty. Right, Larson? Yes. Yes, yes, that's what I said. Anyhow, you haven't got them now. No, I haven't got them now. All right, now, just for the record, Larson, which was it? Did they get too dirty or did they wear out? Whatever I said before. You said both before, Larson. All right, I said both. You haven't got anything on me. We got that little Scott girl statement from last night. She says you tried to kill her. She's lying. I told you she'd lie, didn't I? I only wanted to use the phone. She says you hit her with a tire iron. Did you hit her with that iron? No, I only tried to scare her. I didn't hit her with anything. Then how'd you get those marks around her neck and arm? Police doctor says they were made by that tire iron. I don't care what your doctor says. I didn't hurt her. Now, what do you mean, Larson? You didn't hurt her or you didn't hit her with that tire Neither iron? Neither one. I just wanted to use a phone. How'd you know she had a phone? I didn't know if she had a phone. I just went out to find out. To find out what? To find out if I could use her phone. But you said you didn't know if she had a phone. I don't know anything the way you pushed everything around. Sorry, Larson. We only want the truth. How about a cigarette? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I could use one. Here's light. Larson, where were you Wednesday night, March 18th? How many times are you going to ask me that same question? Just want to make sure we got it right. I told you this morning. I went to a show. I got out about 11, had a beer, and I went home. What time did you get home? About 11.30. Did you stay home? I went to bed. 
What'd you see at the show? I never remember the names. You ought to try to remember this, and it's pretty important. No, it was a deluxe theater. It was Spencer Tracy and something. What was on when you walked in? No news. I never go in in the middle of a picture. Neither do I. Spoilers inform me. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The girl in the box office doesn't remember seeing you go no, in. She knows. It was Keno night. There was a big crowd. Did you win anything? I never do. Anybody hit the jackpot? I don't remember. They give away a lot of money at those neighborhood theaters. I always remember who hits the jackpot. Well, all right, you do. I don't. You remember if anybody won the jackpot? I told you, no. Do they have a jackpot at that show? I guess they do. I don't know. You know, it was Keno night. You should know if they had a jackpot. Maybe they had a jackpot. I don't know. I went out for a smoke. You said the cartoon was on when you walked in. Why do you always twist what I say? I told you the news was on when I went in. Remember anything about the newsreel? It was ten days ago. How do I know it was in it? I only know it was a newsreel. That's all. You're lying, Larson. We checked your alibi. The manager of the theater had to cut the newsreel Wednesday night because the show was running long with Keno night. You didn't go to the show Wednesday night, did you? All right, maybe I didn't. I don't remember. What's the difference? The difference is you could have been in that vacant lot the same night, the night Helen Corday was murdered. I didn't kill her. You can't prove I did. Interrogation room, Friday. Hiya, Jones. It did, huh? You're positive. Uh, yeah, okay. Thanks, Lee. Sure you don't want to tell us what you did with those tennis shoes? I'm not going to go back over all that. I've told you guys all I'm going to tell you. You know how the Corday girl was murdered? How would I know? I don't know anything about it. She was on her way home from work, as usual, about midnight. Of course, you were home in bed about that time. But you didn't go to the show that night, Larson. On her way home, Helen Corday always took a shortcut across a vacant lot. She was about halfway through the lot when the murderer tried to grab her purse. She screamed and he struck her. Hit her several times with a piece of steel pipe 14 inches long. He beat her to death with that piece of steel pipe. Then he dropped the pipe in the right-hand cotton work glove. He left two footprints, size nine, sports king tennis shoes. I know all that. Well, here's something you don't know. When the killer scooped the paper money out of that girl's purse, he accidentally took along a loose rhinestone, a stone that fell out of a cheap barrette in the bottom of her bag. He carried that stone home with him. When he reached in his pocket to pull out the money he stole from her, the rhinestone fell on the floor. So? We found that rhinestone on the rug in your hotel room. Well, I haven't lived in that hotel room all my life. Maybe the tenant before me dropped it there. No, not this one. We checked the cement that held it in that barrette. It matches the glue on the stone. No, Larson, that rhinestone came from the hair clip that Helen Corday wore before she was murdered. That's enough to take you to the district attorney with. What am I supposed to say? We want you to tell us the truth. Why did you kill Helen Corday? Yeah. You want the sandwiches and coffee now, Sergeant? Bring them in, Mike. Looks like we're going to be here a long time. Yeah, I brought you ham, cheese, and liverwurst. And some fruit. The coffee's black. Cream and sugar on the side. Mm, thank you, Mike. Yeah, it looks good. What kind do you want, Larson? Ham, cheese, liverwurst. Oh, not hungry? Okay. That with you? No, thanks. I think I'll have an apple, huh? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I fixed you a plate there, Larson. Uh, coffee's right here. It's a fine apple. Mm. Nice and fresh. This a Washington apple? Yeah, I don't know. Is that coffee hot enough? No, it's fine. Where'd Mike pick these up? Well, in Broster Street. Have these? No, hmm. Oh, it's very good. Well, drink your coffee anyway, Larson. It's getting cold. All right! All right! I didn't kill her. She screamed and I hit her. All I wanted was a purse. That's all I wanted. She... She wouldn't give to me. She had to fight back, so I hit her. I, I didn't want to kill her. All she had to do was give me the purse. I wouldn't have hurt her. I, 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 was, I was drinking, and I didn't know what I was doing. I, I, I was drunk. I was drunk. I didn't, I didn't mean to kill her. I, I, I didn't mean to kill her. I, 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 I
Stay with him. We'll call the stenographer. See you tomorrow, Joe. Good night. Yeah. Sour racket, huh? Willity, 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 you legendies. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed all three episodes remastered and retweaked just for your lovely selves. And that these three episodes, you know, got the blood pumping and the heart racing. A big thank you for listening. And I want to thank and have a massive round of applause and parade of virtual confetti for the glorious heroes that keep this podcast from spiraling into pure chaos, whilst also blasting to the moon, but particularly my Patreon supporters. And first up, the one and only that keeps this show from spiraling into chaos, we have Matto Star, the Old Knight T-Titan, whose mighty footfalls echo through the realms of boredom, crushing monotony with a single heroic stomp and a quick slap in the face. Matto, you're like a superhero of awesome. And I salute you for rescuing us from the clutches of dullness. Your support is like a magic potion that keeps my computer from throwing a tantrum. Seriously, you're the real MVP, mate. Thank you so much, my pal. And I got your email fresh off the press. I cannot wait to read it. Thanks, pal, and thank you again for your support. Now, let's give it up for Lezuka the Bazooka, the legendary guardian against all things dull and uninteresting, with the power to obliterate boredom. Leza, my mate, you're a force to be reckoned with. Thanks for always having my back, and ensuring that my audio doesn't sound like it took a dive into a chasm of dullness where there's nothing but dizzying depths of auditory nonsense. Your support, man, is like a superhero's cape for my content. Never forget how awesome you are, brilliant Lezer, and my pal. Thanks, man. And to my Earl Grey enforcers, and all of my dream team, including the illustrious Chad Warren, Joss Heather, Sunshine Days, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffaelli, Michelangelo Yacone, divided by zero. Leah Fassig, Alia Arcane, Paige Kramer, Jane Gumnick, and Michael Krupp. Thank you for your kindness. Your kindness and support makes you the superheroes of my world. Thanks for being the fantastic individuals that you are. If I had an award, I'd give it to you all. Maybe something like the Conquerors of Monotony Medal. Now, pour your tea, make it nice, ensure your flavouring is precise. Like a story, let it flow. Let the fables and tales take you home. It's these stories that bring us together, and old audio that reminds us of how we've changed. Stay a while, have a listen, and as always, I hope to see you. Again, have a fantastic week. Toodle.